<clears throat> Let us hear God's word again, reading now from the book Exodus and chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And we take up the reading at verse 21, Exodus 12 at 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children shall say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron So they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt.
It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Amen and amen. May God bless to us the reading of his word and to his name alone shall be the praise and the glory. Twin questions, friends, to begin with. And here they are. What silver is more precious than choice silver? And its twin, what gold is more precious than fine gold? And the answer is the silver and gold of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the choicest silver and the finest gold. We turn for our text to Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is one of those psalms, there are several, which very helpfully give what we might call a a historical panorama or a sort of replay of earlier events to remind us in in a compact and comprehensive way of what went on in an earlier time. You'll notice that this 105th psalm begins with an ascription of praise to God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And it ends in the same manner. Praise the Lord. And in between, it reviews some of, not every one and not every tiny detail, but it reviews some of the main lines of God's dealings with his people, his ancient people, in the days that ran from Abraham to Moses. And we take for our text Psalm 105 and verse 37. Psalm 105 and verse 37. Then he, God, brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. And the title for the message is Silver 
and gold. Immediately, that statement in our text should ring a bell from something that was read in our hearing moments ago from the 12th of Exodus, which records that solemn night, the night of watching by the Lord, when, didn't this strike you as well, this detail, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, at the end of 430 years on that very day, not a fortnight before, not a a couple of months later on, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And just a few verses earlier, and we read it, we read this. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And we read that the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. They let them have what they asked. They asked for silver. They handed it over. They asked for gold. They handed it over. They asked for clothing. They handed it over. Well, we're not so bothered about the clothing this morning, but we are very interested in the silver and the gold. And so our text refers back to Exodus 12. Our text again, verse 37 of the 105th. Then he, God, brought out Israel with silver and gold, And there was none among his tribes who stumbled. God then bringing his people Israel out of Egypt. And doing so with silver and gold. And what we're going to do this morning, dear friends, unashamedly, unashamedly, is to take this matter of silver and gold in our text in the full blaze of of gospel light. We like to do that, don't we? The full blaze of gospel light. And to do so, the Lord helping me, I wish to apply this matter of the silver and gold of the gospel in terms of three absolute classic matters for the Christian. Three foundation pillars For everything, if you will. Our justification. Our sanctification. And our glorification. Those three things. And before we set out on this little journey, which we trust will be a profitable one in the Lord's mercies, let me remind you that each of these Silver and gold items are justification, sanctification, glorification are found in, proceed from, and are entirely dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified in him. We are sanctified in him. We are glorified in him. And if you're a bit dubious about it, don't be. I got it from the Apostle Paul. And a lovely verse, 1 Corinthians 1.30, which tells us that Christ Jesus is made to us. What's he made to us? Our righteousness, in other words, our justification, our 
sanctification, the very word, and our redemption. And redemption there in 1 Corinthians, it doesn't refer in the way that redemption often does to being redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. That is glorious, of course, but that's not the reference there. The reference there in the sequence, the orderly sequence, Christ made to us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, uh, the redemption there is referring to our glorification, the redemption of the body. What is yet to be? What is still to come? So, off we go. The silver and gold, then, of the gospel. Seen, first of all, dear friends, in our justification. And our text here about God bringing out Israel with silver and gold, our, get, our, our text here in gospel light is a magnificent reminder of that other Bible verse which de- declares to us that, that salvation is of the Lord. That is to say, it comes from him and it belongs to him. It's not worked up from below by us. It's sent down from above by him. Salvation is of the Lord. Now we need to ask the question, in case there's any uncertainty amongst us, what is justification? It's one of these big Bible words. But of course, we must not shrink from big Bible words. We need to understand them and what they mean. No point using long words we don't understand. But if it's a Bible word... We don't want to abandon the use of it because it's long and difficult. We want to find out what it means and so use it. So what is meant by justification? Well, it's a word from the law courts. From the law courts. We may express it like this. Our justification is the act of God as judge. The act of God as judge whereby he pardons sinners and accepts them as righteous, or sometimes the word is used as just. And as a result, he puts them in a permanently right relationship with God. To be justified is to be pardoned of sin. It's to be counted righteous in God's sight, through Jesus, who you remember is made to us our righteousness. The righteousness of Christ given to us. A righteousness that we don't have of our own. And that we couldn't somehow, from here, there, or wherever, get for our own. We couldn't work it for our own. The Galatians reading reminded us that by the works of the law, our doing, our keeping, our obeying, none of us will be justified. None of us will be pardoned. None of us will ever be declared righteous. It must be of God and of his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his compassion and the pity that he takes upon us. So, justification. The act of God as judge whereby he pardons sinners, accepts us as righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ puts us in a permanently right relationship with him that we didn't have before. Before being justified, the sinner, all of us are sinners, because we're all by nature sinners and fallen short of the 
the glory of God. Young boys, sinners, young girls, sinners, young men and women, sinners, old veterans, sinners, and all the rest of us, by nature, sinners, separated from God, cut off, great chasm, great gulf, gulf God, God who is so pure and so so perfectly holy that he cannot look upon sin or, or have anything to do with it. For how can God, who is light, have any fellowship or relationship with us who are darkness? That's how we were. And dear soul, that's how you are. That's how you are. This morning in Solihull, if, if you don't yet know what it is to be justified to have your sins pardoned to be in Christ but once justified the sinner is reconciled to God put right with God and we cannot emphasize too much God does it it's all of his mercy it's all to his praise it's all to his glory and that's the point and what he does and the way that he does it I say is choicer than the choicest silver And it's finer than the finest gold. In very truth, when God saves a sinner, when he brings a precious eternal soul from darkness to light, what does he do? Well, in the language of our text, he brings us out with silver and gold. I want to unpack this in two ways before we move on. Think, first of all, for a moment, about the riches of God's grace. Just as the people of Israel, when they were in Egypt, were in bondage, serving a cruel taskmaster, facing only the bleakest of prospects, namely more hard labor, and ultimately death in an alien country. Yet God in power and might, God in grace and mercy, God in love and compassion, he brought them out. He brought out Israel, our text tells us. And we read earlier and we noted it. He did it on the very day, 430 years on from them going there. Well, so, in a manner which excels even that mighty divine work of the Exodus, God has provided for sinners. For we also are in bondage to sin. We also serve a cruel taskmaster, Satan. And we also face only the bleakest of prospects, death and hell. Yet God, can we grasp this, dear ones? Can we, can we grasp it? Can we ever grasp it? God has provided salvation for just such as we are. Helpless, hopeless cases. Yet he is our help. And he has come with salvation. In all the magnificence of the silver and gold of the gospel. It's preciousness, it's choiceness, it's It's fineness. We spoke of him in prayer as the incomparable God. The old Puritan George Swinnock 
has a grand treatise on that. The incomparable God. And he has provided an incomparable salvation. Salvation from the wrath of God. Salvation from the dominion of sin. Salvation from eternal death. No wonder the Apostle Paul speaks in one place of the exceeding riches of God's grace. What other words would do? So when thinking of the silver and gold of the gospel in our justification, think of the riches of God's grace. But I said two things for this little unpacking. And so I I want you to think in the second place for another moment about the merits of Christ. Or we can never think too much or too long upon the merits of Christ. Well, might we ask, this, this wondrous grace that, that to God belongs in the provision of our salvation, how, how can it be so when our sin is, is so exceedingly sinful and offensive to God? Our sin, th- think about it, it's rebellion against him who is our rightful owner and ruler. It's transgression of the clear bounds that he has set for us in his commandments. It's missing the mark that he has instructed us to aim at. It's defiling ourselves in his pure sight. Thus, as one preacher has put it, making ourselves unfit for his company. It's incurring guilt before his judgment seat. So how, dear ones, can God possibly deal with all that? How can there ever be pardon, forgiveness, salvation for us? Surely our sin presents a permanent obstacle to God ever justifying us, ever putting us right with ourselves. Well, it would. It would present such an obstacle were it not for the mind-blowing, stupendous fact that God the Father has provided salvation for sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, his only Son, his beloved Son. So that the Apostle, one of the high points in that wonderful high point itself of the 8th of Romans tells us that God, that's the Father did not spare his only Son the Lord Jesus Christ but gave him up for us all or as the same Apostle puts it in another place that God made him that's God the Father made him God the Son God the Father made him God the Son who knew no sin. To be sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God. God the Father sent the Son into the world to save us from our sins. And so think, friends, of the merits of Christ's sinless life. The merits of Christ's appalling sufferings. The merits of Christ's complete obedience. The merits of Christ's sin-bearing death on the cross. He bore our sins in his own body upon the tree. 
the merits of Christ's glorious resurrection, all of which merit is given to the sinner, given to the sinner, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's given to us when we turn to him. That's the godly sorrow of repentance from sin. And when we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that's casting aside every other hope and help and prop and prospect and looking away to Jesus, looking away to Jesus and to him alone and to all that he ever did for you, to all that he ever merited for you on your behalf, in your place, to give you just, to give you such a great salvation. Just this from the beginning of First Peter before we move on. You were ransomed, redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, earthly silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, gospel, silver and gold. Our justification... We must race on to say something in the second place about our sanctification. We're only justified once. You don't get justified twice. Or once this week and once next year and justified. How many times have you been justified? Once. Once only. But once justified, we are being sanctified all the time. Justification is one-off. Sanctification is ongoing, a progressive, increasing business. So then, where does the silver and gold come in this time? Well, in a very particular manner. We asked the question earlier, what is meant by justification? So it won't do us any harm, will it, to ask the question, what is meant by sanctification? Well, in short, sanctification is the work of God in us and upon us, whereby we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. I remember a veteran evangelical minister, well, he's in glory now, so in that sense he's not veteran anymore. But uh, he was once asked by, I think, a, a journalist who was writing a piece about him in a magazine, And uh, this journalist uh, strung out a whole load of this uh, fellow's achievements, as you might call them. And and the journalist said to him something like this. Now he says, look, uh, uh, you've been an evangelical minister for for all all the decades that it was. You've sold millions of books. You've been a royal chaplain to the Queen. You've preached uh, in all parts of the world, including university missions everywhere. And he strung out a few more of these things. And said, so, uh, what's your ambition now? Have you got any ambitions left? And without pausing, the dear man, I say now in glory, said, to be more like Jesus. He had the right idea, didn't he? We need to share it. The same idea, to be more like Jesus. And, And really, that's what sanctification is, becoming more like Jesus. More of the mind and the likeness and the loveliness The loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's altogether lovely, isn't he? Have we got any loveliness of our own? 
But oh, when we have the, the fragrance and the loveliness of Christ. Meditate some time upon that lovely hymn. We're not singing it today, but it's a beauty. The one that begins, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling all I do and say. We sang it at our wedding. It was one of our wedding hymns. That's right, isn't it? Got it right, yeah. Nearly 49 years ago, if you're interested. But uh, there we are. And we're still singing it now. By his love and power controlling all I do and say. That's sanctification in a nutshell, dear ones. Being more like Jesus. In other words, increasing in holiness and in godliness. In love for the Lord and his commandments. His word, his people, his day, everything about him. Being changed, as the apostle puts it, in one place from one degree of glory to another. It's a, it's a vital part and parcel of our being made ready and fit for heaven. That holy place into which nothing unclean can ever enter. Yet, dear ones, this, this work of sanctification, it doesn't just happen as if all we had to do was sort of sit down and relax and all of a sudden, what do you know? I'm as holy as I can ever be. Oh, not so. Not so. God uses means in our increasing holiness, in our sanctification. And one of the richest of these means, one of the Real, choice, silver, and fine gold of his means is trials and afflictions. That's what enabled the psalmist to say in the 119th, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Good, you say? Trials and afflictions? Good? I said, good. The psalmist said, Good. Do you ever wonder how he could say that? Do you ever wonder how in all our struggles and tears and sorrows and heartbreaks and anguishes and perplexities and darknesses we can say that? All too easily when we're going through such experiences in the Christian life, hard times, dark days, mysterious unexplainable providences, unaware of what's going on, impossible to see how something is ever going to turn out decently, all too easily we think, how can these things ever help me get to heaven? How can they make me more like Jesus? How can I ever possibly grow in grace as a Christian with all these troubles? You know those sorts of questions? Have you ever asked them? Do you ever ask them? Dear one, are you asking them right now today? in some circumstance or other. Surely we imagine these things, they seem more likely to impede us, to hinder us, to hold us back, to do us harm, to, to, to discourage us. But oh, when we feel like that, how wrong we are. How wrong we are. When we think like that again, we're missing the silver and gold of our sanctification. We had something from First Peter a moment ago. Here he is again. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, purpose, he's going to talk about here, purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just before we move on to our final item, let's just try and make a little list. It can only be a little list. We could come up with a larger list, but we'll settle with a little list of some of the ways in which it can be good for us to be afflicted. Ways in which the trial of our faith can be not only beneficial, but necessary and really productive so that we wouldn't have made half the progress we've made in sanctification had we somehow bypassed the trial. Well, one benefit is the development of our faith. Following the Lord in the dark, trusting him where we can't trace him, believing that he knows what he's doing, he knows exactly what he's doing, and he will bring us safely through. Here's another purpose, teaching us to take God's word more seriously, taking up our Bibles more diligently and enthusiastically, reading them prayerfully, studying them humbly, and for one special reason above every other good reason, to get to know God's, God better. Because remember that, that in, this, in this amazing book, this is, this is God's book. And he gives it to us to, to reveal himself to us. It's his book about himself. Here's another blessing of trials. To help keep our consciences tender so that we don't sin so easily. Here's another to remind us that every good gift that we have comes to us from God and so to teach us to be more thankful. Here's another. To enable us through our trials and difficulties to be more ready in sympathizing with those fellow believers who are undergoing their trials, maybe similar to ours, maybe nothing like ours, but we've got ours and they've got theirs. Paul speaks of it, doesn't he? Comforting one another in their trials with the comfort that, first of all, we've received from God in ours. It's part of us doing one another good in the church family, in the fellowship of the people of God, in the household of faith. We're not just a bunch of lone rangers. We belong together. We've got gospel bonds. I often sign off my emails with the three words, in gospel bonds. And it's not some sort of vain repetition, but it's a reminder to me and to the brother or sister I'm writing to that we're in gospel bonds. We're not just a a load of individuals here. We belong together when we're in Christ. And so trials and afflictions can help us. Ours can help us not only as a blessing to us, but a blessing to others. That doesn't mean we've got to go around telling everybody our business. Neither does it mean we've got to go around requiring everybody else to tell them, everybody else to tell us their business. There, there is often the need to be discreet and careful. And we must, above all, brethren, as Christians, above all, keep confidences. Keep confidences. Unless it's something so grievous you've got to go to the police about, but we put that on one side and trust it doesn't arise. But you know what I mean. Ordinarily, we must keep confidences. Or, one final item in our, remember just our little list, the benefit of afflictions to wean us bit by bit from this earth's offerings and to wean us more and more onto heaven's never-ending glories. In a word, to help us heavenwards 
And old Job knew something about this. He said this in his 23rd. But he, God, knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as, what's the next word? Gold. Gold. Our justification, our sanctification. We must just pop in a third and final word to round off. And it concerns our glorification. Where is the ultimate goal of our justification and our sanctification. The ultimate goal of Christ being made to us our righteousness and our sanctification, what came next? Our redemption. And I explained that in the context there, it's not taking us back to redemption in the Calvary sense, though we love to dwell on that, but it's taking us on to redemption in the glorification sense. In other words, our justification and our sanctification are taking us to heaven. Before we get there, we expect to die and go to our graves. Unless, of course, we are amongst that uh, company who are still alive here upon the earth when the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes. Just think of it for a moment. When at the precise moment of death for the Christian, our souls and body part company for a little while, and ultimately that's all it is, just a little while, our body to be buried in our grave, our soul to be taken into the immediate, underline that, into the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, what a bringing forth of silver and gold that will be. When one day soul and body are reunited, instant delight, perfect enjoyment, holy fellowship for the soul immediately upon death and then of course new dimensions when at the resurrection soul and body meet again. Soul and body must say a fond farewell to one another. People will often say, won't they, at the end of a conversation even if you, you've got no plans to see them again and uh, you may never, they'll say see you later, won't they? See you later. And in many cases, you never do. But uh, see you later. Well, there's a real sense in which soul and body at death, they say to one another, see you later. And that's all it is, dear ones. It's not some terrifying thing. It's a case of see you later. And they will when soul and body meet again at the resurrection. And what a day that'll be at the day of resurrection. I often think in a, in a cemetery, and it's a beneficial thing for Christians to go to cemeteries from time to time. Sadly, you see some wretched stuff on some of the headstones. Other times, you see something which is thrilling. And uh, if particularly uh, uh, a number of people in a particular church family in a locality tend to be buried in that local cemetery, uh, we have one uh, down where we are, where... Uh, Often we troop round as a church when some dear brother or sister is, is taken to glory. And uh, I can think of another one in another part of the country where we were attending a, a grave once and uh, we were putting in this dear man who'd been an elder in the church and uh, just over there, so to speak, where there was the grave of the, a former pastor of the church. And you think, what a day it'll be when, when the graves open and not only will souls and bodies uh, meet again, but uh, uh, there will be rising, you know, with those, those dear ones whom we knew in life and were buried uh, 
of course, perhaps in husband and wife terms, in the very same grave, but uh, in other words, Christian fellowship terms, a whole range of graves. I often think when we're in our local cemetery uh, with some of the funerals from Welcome Hall at Catsill in Bromsgrove, what a resurrection day it'll be in North Bromsgrove Cemetery when all the former church members rise and shine. And that'll be, you see, the see you later will have happened. The later will have arrived. And oh, I say again, what a bringing forth by God of his people with silver and gold that will be. Glorified in Christ. Then in the fullness of eternal things, we shall enter into the joy of our Lord. No more struggling with sin. No more tears of repentance. No more battling against the enemy. No more contending for the faith. And sadly, even among the people of God, no more falling out with one another. But all joy, all joy. We shall not come out of the grave as poor and as feeble as we we went in, brethren. You can be sure of that. As the end of our text puts it, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. None feeble on that day. None stumbling on that day. Uh, None weak and, and weary and poorly on that day. There's that line, isn't there? In a hymn, can't remember which one, but I remember this line. A feeble saint shall win the day. And supremely that will be on show in the resurrection. We shan't be feeble anymore. Let the message finish with this beautiful part of the 107th Psalm. I give it to you in the Scottish metrical. It's particularly moving in that. And it goes exquisitely to a tune called Torwood. These two stanzas from the 107th. The storm, thinking of the storm of life and then glory at the last. The storm is changed into a calm at his command and will. So that the waves which raged before now quiet are and still then are they glad because at rest and quiet now they be so to the haven he them brings which they desired to see Amen